Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Longtime listeners of Talking Feds know that we began several years ago as a podcast of almost exclusively former federal prosecutors, this at a time when the Trump circus first came to town. Since then, we have branched out considerably, but we return to our roots every three months or so, with a recurring set of three fantastic guests, very good friends of the podcast all, who know the ways of DOJ better than anyone. And this is the week when we get the band, our happy band, we few, we happy few, we band of DOJ commentators back together, and the timing couldn't be better. The last several weeks have featured intensive focus on the department and decisions it has undertaken or is considering that will have enormous consequences for the well-being of the country and our continuing effort to slough out the effects of Trump rule. Foremost among these are the now two special counsel, Jack Smith and Robert Hur, appointed to look into purposeful taking and long-term obstruction of classified documents by Donald Trump and the appearance of classified documents in his office and home by President Joe Biden. The recent appointment of her in particular to investigate the Biden problems provoked chagrin in the White House, which had apparently hoped to bring the matter to a quick and quiet closure, and now finds itself in the classic call to arms of a Washington-style scandal with no clear indication of how long it will dog Biden in his administration, which, to complicate matters, is losing its very able chief of staff, Ron Klain. In the meantime, Smith is assiduously pursuing two broad investigations targeting former President Donald Trump and his circle, one into the Mar-a-Lago documents and one into a welter of crimes growing out of January 6, 2021 leaving the country peering in through plate glass to discern what may be happening. And finally, this month brought the complicating factor of a House Republican conference and an oversight committee eager to inflict whatever political or legal damage on the department that it can. To break down the inside scoops, the nuances and stress points within the department of the stories that have dominated the news in recent weeks, and will continue to dominate the news. We couldn't do better than the perfect group of returning friends and DOJ commentators. And they are Katie Benner, who covers the Department of Justice for the New York Times. She was part of a team there that won a Pulitzer Prize for public service for reporting on workplace sexual harassment issues. Thanks, as always, for being on our quarterly DOJ episode, Katie. Glad to be here. Matt Miller, a partner at Vianovo and the former director of the Office of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice. He's an MSNBC analyst and he's worked in leadership positions in both the U.S. House and Senate. Matt, very good to see you. It's been a little bit. Great to be here. And Andrew Weissman, a professor of practice with the Center on the Administration of Criminal Law at NYU Law School and also an on-air contributor to MSNBC. He served as lead prosecutor in Robert Mueller's special counsel's office and wrote a book about it, Where Law Ends, 
and held several other leadership roles in the department where he started as a line prosecutor. Andrew, thanks so much for coming. I issue the other with me, line prosecutor, to try to puzzle through these questions. Great to be here. All right. So this is like such a perfect group for now because I want to take advantage of everyone's deep and specialized knowledge to really dig deep into sophisticated analysis of the DOJ issues that have been in the news. We're not going to rehearse the facts. Most of them are on the table, but really try to analyze them. So our quarterly episode comes with perfect timing, to my view. So let's start with the big story of the last fortnight, the Biden documents. And we've had just in the last couple of days, big stories deeply reported from both the Washington Post and New York Times, the back and forth starting in November 2nd, the tension between the department and the White House. Let me start with a kind of, is this a meta question? Whatever. What do we care? Do these fine-grained questions about why the White House didn't immediately reveal everything and what degree of possible counter-instruction they got from the DOJ, does it matter for anything, politics, policy, or criminal law? I'll take a crack at that. I think it's really important to note that we actually should not assume that nothing happened with respect to President Biden. It is true that to date, we don't know any facts, I think, that would suggest criminality, knowledge or intent that he was improperly retaining the documents and certainly that he obstructed the investigation, the sort of key things that we know existed with respect to former President Trump. But we still don't know the answer to particularly how the documents got to his personal residence yeah. and whether he had no knowledge of them and essentially all of those circumstances, you know, we can surmise, but we don't have an answer to that yet. Well, let me stop you, Andrew, as the other DOJ guy. There's no indication of anything untoward. Why is that enough to be ransacking, not just a criminal investigation, but it, we, there is no indication? Why does that suffice? 48 days is a long time. Sorry to interrupt, but 48 days between those two searches just feels like an unsolved mystery to me. I'm not saying that's criminal activity, but it's not like this is a straightforward issue where everybody knows all of the answers to all the questions and there's nothing to investigate. So we have classified documents Mm -hmm. and some unspecified number of government documents, which has been largely ignored, in a location they should not be. That is worthy of knowing the answers from a national security and potentially criminal perspective. There's no question that it, that the Trump investigation colors this. But your point is sort of like, even if we knew more and it is suggestive of no criminality, which, you know, I suspect is where we're going to come out, it still is not a justification for the current White House handling of the matter. You don't get to point to Donald Trump and say, He is a disaster. He's handled this terribly. He is held to a different standard, all of which is true. And it still means that the current White House doesn't get to say we've been transparent when, in my view, they haven't been. Now, there may be good answers for why they haven't been, but I do think those are still legitimate questions, even though it may, at the end of the day, not rise to anything close to a criminal case. 
Well, they're suggesting why in both of these articles, but you're right, we need more. You know, and it's certainly true. I've been there in these situations, Matt, I'm sure you have as well. The normal axiom of the communications folks, get it all out, it comes into conflict with a possibility of what DOJ will think. Matt, let me just ask you to follow up. Okay, it's true. We don't know exactly what's the 48 days, but since we're focused on Biden, this isn't an investigation into his lawyers or his staffers when he was vice president. Does it really matter? Whether it matters politically, I think, is a question we don't have an answer to yet. Whether it matters substantively, I think that this is maybe the most overblown controversy that I can remember really going back to the Clinton email investigation. Hillary Clinton email. Yeah. The Hillary Clinton email investigation. You have to put this in perspective that the mishandling of classified documents is a fairly frequent activity that takes place inside the government where people you know, mistakenly put documents in the wrong place, mistakenly take them home. I think it's different when you look at a former very senior official, like a president or a vice president, because if you found classified documents in my office at home, you'd know how they got there because I brought them here. Well, President Biden most likely did not pack the documents. Almost certainly. That were removed, them, almost right? certainly did not. And so there is no reason to think that he personally was involved in this. And he has said publicly, and we have no good reason to think he's not telling the truth, that he was surprised that they were there. I think a couple of things have happened. Number one, the press is never good at handling perspective when it comes to a controversy involving a president and injecting perspective into their coverage to help explain that not every problem is a crisis, not every controversy is a scandal, and I'm not sure that every investigation deserves a special counsel and a full-blown DOJ inquiry. I don't believe one was merited here. I think when you look at the way the White House has handled this, I think there is a, a threshold question of whether they owed the public an explanation when they first found these documents. I don't personally think that they did for two reasons. One, back to my earlier point that this is not the biggest deal in the world if it was an, an honest mistake, as it is, is so far, there's no evidence to contradict their claim that it was. And number two, I do think it was appropriate for them to cooperate with the investigation quietly and hope that it could all be wrapped up. And that means not going public with stuff, right? Well, and look, I think they had an expectation that DOJ wouldn't, or, or they should have had a fair expectation, probably an incorrect one, that DOJ wouldn't leak this, which of course at some point they did. And I don't think it's an accident that this leaked, that this leaked in that period where there was some question over whether the AG was going to appoint a special counsel or not. I suspect that the leak was to influence his decision. So I think the White House was correct to try to handle this quietly with the Justice Department and not take public steps that would pressure the Attorney General into taking an expansive view of this that wasn't warranted by the facts. And in any event, I mean, I think the White House has, has taken it on the chin a lot for being either negligent or boobish. But, you know, when you're in this kind of setting where what many people think of as the government really subdivides and goes to their own corners of DOJ, Biden's private attorneys, the White House itself, there, there may not be very good answers. I think we're all showing our colors, so I want to go to our institutional colors. So I want to go to you, Katie. The complete honest broker reporter. So supposedly the White House is now, the honeymoon's over and they are livid at Merrick Garland. Does that seem to be accurate? And if so, what's the argument there? I mean, whether or not it's accurate, I think that the entire Michigas has basically 
bought Merrick Garland job permanence until the end of the administration. I really can't see him leaving. I can't see them pushing him out right now. That would be a bit of a disaster. Like Janet Reno, right? Yeah. Exactly. He he was Renoized. I I think I also disagree with both Andrew and Matt on whether or not this investigation should be be taken seriously. I think if we can go to some pre-lapsarian era where Donald Trump doesn't exist, I know that's hard to do, and think about if this had happened absent him, I think we would think this was a bigger deal. And I think that there is a real desire to constantly think about this in the context of Trump, which I think is very dangerous to do for me. At least I will say from the point of view of a reporter, and I do agree with Matt that the press is really bad at nuance and really bad at treating things with scale and degree. I think that we did that in the Mueller investigation, for example. There was a lot of reporting that basically because this large special counsel investigation was happening, it was going to end with Trump leaving the White House in handcuffs. I think we all remember that. I never had a Mueller time t-shirt or like a Robert Mueller doll, but a lot of people did. And that was in large part because of the media narrative around how these investigations should end. And so I am not comfortable saying, I think that this investigation should end in any way. Because I just, I think that for me, reporting, it could impact the way that I see a story that we have literally no information about. But I I think that without Trump, we might see this differently. And I'm not saying that we would say that Joe Biden's a a criminal. I'm just saying that we might take it more seriously. But it's, it's hard to do because people are so angry about Donald Trump. And there are people who are still so angry that he's sort of walking around. Is the White House mad at Merrick Garland? We've reported before that they've gotten mad at Merrick Garland when Garland didn't say anything about January 6th for about a year. They got mad at Garland when it didn't seem like he was doing anything visible on Trump. They've gotten mad at Merrick Garland at various points in his tenure, especially related to really the most politically sensitive investigations, even frustrated with him over what the heck is going on with the investigation into Joe Biden's son. So yes, I'm sure they're frustrated by this as well, including the fact that when the Justice Department made its announcement, they gave a very full timeline of when Biden contacted the department versus the FBI versus the National Archives, and this like long period of time where there was seemingly no action around an effort to try to figure out how much classified and just to Andrew's point, government information was out there. And so yes, but the White House being mad is not very meaningful in this situation because as mad as they get... They don't move to fire the attorney general, which I think is a huge difference that is important because under the Trump era, there was always the threat that Trump was going to fire the attorney general and do it really publicly and not care that that was incredibly inappropriate. In this case, the Biden White House is very different. You know, Katie, I think you're right that Trump has colored our interpretation of this investigation, but I think it actually goes the opposite way. I think were it not for the Trump documents investigation, we probably wouldn't have a special counsel. My evidence for that is when there were first reports that Trump had documents, classified documents at Mar-a-Lago months before the raid, it wasn't really covered with all that much seriousness by the press. I think most legal analysts thought that it wasn't an investigation that was likely to go anywhere. I remember kind of laughing it off and thinking, yeah, of course he does. Everything was chaotic. They'll return them and that will be the end of it because that's how you would expect that investigation to go. Of course, that's not how he behaved, and that's why he has serious criminal jeopardy. And I think if it were not for the Trump case and the somewhat parallels, right, the parallels at the base level that this is about documents being in the wrong place, everything after that has been handled differently to the the extent we know. If it weren't for the Trump case, 
I think this would be viewed as not that serious. And I would expect that the Justice Department could be able to look at this in a fairly routine investigation and probably not appoint a special counsel. But I think the attorney general, by having appointed a special counsel in the, the Trump matter, mistakenly, in my opinion, then boxed himself in where he felt obligated to appoint one for this investigation, which for what we know publicly, and there could be facts we don't know, has a very different fact set. There is a big difference, though, between appointing a special counsel when the person who you're investigating is your boss who appointed you. And that was sort of the impetus for the special counsel regulations. And many people criticize the appointment in the Trump case because that's sort of more routine that you will investigate people of an opposing party and your own party, but you know, they're not your boss. What changed in the Trump case was once he said that he was going to run and it appeared that you had this you know, Trump versus Biden rematch, that changed the equation, I think, for the attorney general. But you know, I generally agree with you that the Trump case inevitably colors how this is being looked at and seen. But I, the one thing I will just also disagree with is I do think that there's spills of classified information I don't think it happens at the TSSCI level, the sort of top secret compartmented information. There have been, I mean, one of the reasons we wrote recently about the Gonzalez case where there was a declination is, you know, it, obviously it happens. But I, I was at the FBI. I saw tons of classified information. Did I know about spills? Yes, there was ways to handle those. Did I know anything were a former president or vice president had top secret compartmented information. I understand that there is overclassification in the system. I can't say that I ever saw it with top secret compartmented information, which is the kind of thing every single time I saw it, I didn't want to know it. I was too concerned about the inadvertent spillage. And so, you know, that is a big deal. And my only point here is just that we actually don't have a lot of information about basic facts. I'm not a huge believer in the, oh, we didn't want to do this because we would offend DOJ because I see the White House currently doing a lot publicly, either directly or through the Washington Post and the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. I think they made a decision for whatever reasons, you know, rightly or wrongly, they see that it blew up publicly and now they're digging out. But I do think that the spin is not helpful because I think there probably is nothing there. And I don't understand why they weren't more just transparent early on. And it may be very naive, but I just feel like that would have been an easier way to handle it, both strategically. And I do think the public is owed that from public officials. I feel like public officials work for the public. And so I don't think that you have the luxury of saying, you know, how are we going to deal with this and how are we going to spin it? And and I think it was naive to think that DOJ would be able to open and close, particularly since there were documents in so many locations. So anyway, that being said, Harry, I get your point at the bottom line is that it is highly likely that we have a communications strategy issue, but not a substantive issue. I want to try to tie actually all three of these comments together, because what I have found so rankling just as a citizen about the whole dynamic is it goes to what Matt said, that there is this pretty obvious superficial core. But then the real focus has been the 
possible bumbling or possible explainable uh, strategy of the White House. And as things have come out in a drip, drip way, the overall feeling has been, even though it's ridiculous, you know, well, it's kind of building as a scandal. So he's kind of 30% of what Trump was or 20% or whatever. You actually have a third of the country thinking Biden should now be criminally prosecuted. And I go back to the media in part because I think, as my first question suggested, yeah, there's stuff to look into here about how fast the White House's current response is. But this is the stuff the media loves because they were the ones in front there talking to White House spokeswoman, what exactly happened, what didn't, and that sort of focus on when we, the press, were told in these 48 days is much more fascinating, I think, to them than the fact in front of their faces of there's not even a suggestion of Biden himself having done anything. Can I switch gears and go to her? We've talked about this a little in the past, but there's this sense in which the DOJ, or certainly this attorney general, sort of outsources, I think is a word you've used, like these hard decisions, especially to GOP appointees. So is that leaning over backwards too much, do you think? Should it have just been more of a plain, vanilla, obscure kind of former prosecutor, because it does have to come from outside the department? Or what's your feeling about the way that it so happens the special counsels have this you know, pretty tough and Republican gloss to them. You know, let me get it a couple of things. One, I think there's this question of whether a special counsel was required or not. And as I've said, I don't think it was necessary in either the Trump or the Biden case. And I think the AG has really set precedents that are going to now bind him for the rest of, of the administration. I mean, it's going to be hard if there are any other criminal investigations that touch on the White House for him not to appoint a special counsel. If there are investigations that involve people in the cabinet, it's going to be hard for him not to appoint a special counsel. And I don't think that's what the rules require. If the rules required that every time the president was impacted by criminal investigation, they would just say that rather than leaving it to the attorney general's discretion. That's one of the reasons for the new rules, because the old regime, there were independent counsels every week. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I think a few things concern me. One, when you look at the people that he has either appointed or, or chosen to do some of these investigations, he left the investigation into Hunter Biden in the hands of a holdover U.S. attorney in Delaware, a Trump appointee. He appointed then to be the special counsel investigating President Biden, a Trump political appointee to two roles, one U.S. attorney and one uh, a senior department official in the deputy attorney general's office. And when it came time to appoint someone to investigate President Trump, he appointed a career nonpartisan official. So he has seemed to set this you know, standard for himself that only Republicans can investigate Democrats but Democrats can't be entrusted to investigate Republicans. And I think that is a dangerous way to approach the Justice Department. I think it unfairly cast doubt on the ability of the U.S. attorneys who you ought to have confidence in to conduct their investigations without partisanship, without being political. And it turns over control of the Justice Department in a way that I don't think is appropriate. I don't think a lot of people voted for President Biden so his Justice Department could have major decisions outsourced to Trump officials. And look, once is fine, twice is fine, but you start to set this precedent 
I don't know Robert Hur. I have no reason to doubt his integrity. But when you start going around uh, appointing special counsels who aren't accountable to you in the same way a regular U.S. A- attorney is, you know, Robert Hur could very well decide that he wants to demand that Joe Biden has to appear before a grand jury. And he's going to force that issue with Merrick Garland. He may decide that he wants to take this investigation in a way that the facts don't call for. And Merrick Garland feels like he can't say no because it will leak to Republicans and cause a scandal. So you put all of these potential triggers in the system that I think, one, aren't required by the rules, two, aren't necessarily in the interest of justice, and three, can really lead you to lose control over your own department. And that worries me to a great extent. So I think Matt is raising two really interesting but separate points. One is sort of, is there an overuse by Garland of special counsels? And the other is sort of this selection process. So I think those are sort of intellectually distinct. And there's no question that if you look through history, there's definitely been this idea that the Democrats appoint you know, Republicans to investigate Republicans, but Republicans don't give a damn about, <laughs> about that issue. <laughs> and so there is this sense of appeasement. And in history, appeasement has not actually fared that well. But, you know, I do think that Garland seems to be reacting to what happened during the Mueller investigation and those attacks. Whether he is correctly reacting to it is, I think, a really fair point. Look, I've been critical of Merrick Garland in connection with other things, which is sort of the alacrity in terms of when they started looking at what I call the higher ups of of January 6th. But I do think it's worth pointing out that Merrick Garland and, and Lisa Monaco both made a tough call on doing the search. So it's it's not like they are completely jettisoning all controversial decisions. And I can say with Lisa Monaco, I've seen her make tough decisions where she is putting herself on the line and not doing what sort of a typical Washington expedient, let's see if somebody else will own it before I do. (laughs) I've seen her actually, you know, as the head of the National Security Division, make the calls that you need to make. And I, I suspect, I don't know, I have no information that in connection with the search of Mar-a-Lago, that concern about the national security of the United States was an overriding interest. So I just, I'm not really disagreeing with Matt. I'm just trying to balance it a little bit in terms of decision-making that they've made that is controversial that they owned. Well, one thing that Matt brought up that I thought was really interesting about her Rob Hur's investigation is the potential it has to directly impact the Jack Smith investigation around the Mar-a-Lago documents. And this is not something I'd really thought of very much before, but what if Rob Hur wants, keep in mind, in both cases, all of the witnesses are lawyers. Great. All of the witnesses are lawyers for the president, White House <laughs> counsel, Pat Philbin, Pat Cipollone, blah, blah, blah. What if Rob Hur says to one of the lawyers, I want to ask you questions about your direct conversations with Joe Biden. And the lawyers say, I don't want to talk to you about that because of executive privilege. Do they litigate that executive privilege claim? Do they argue about it? How do they come out on it? And then how does that impact the same executive privilege claim that Pat Philbin might make reasonably? Or even Mark Meadows, who as the chief of staff to the president has pretty good executive privilege claims on his face. So I guess that is sort of like an interesting dynamic at play between these two investigations that I hadn't really delved into. And then the other, there's just this issue of 
what political party is the special counsel or, you know, the members of the team. I totally understand the discomfort and I'm not naive. I do live in the real world. I understand why this is an issue, but I also understand that it's an issue that I hated. I've always hated. I hate the idea that just because somebody votes a certain way that they cannot do a job. I'm not going to put you on the spot, Andrew, but there were many members of the Mueller investigation who, because they were Democrats, their ability to do a fair and independent job in their investigations, deeply, deeply questioned. Like I said, I live in the real world. I understand why this happens. But at the same time, it drives me nuts. Anyway, continue. It drives me nuts, too. And that is very much my point. That is very yes, much my exactly. point, is that He's this appointment idea yeah. that only Republicans can investigate Democrats, I think, is incorrect. I think there are a number of qualified U.S. attorneys at the Justice Department and career people whose political affiliations we don't 100%. know, who we can trust to conduct these investigations, and that every time we don't have to pick someone of the, the opposing party. Or if the rule is it has to be someone of the opposing party, then it always ought to be the case. And it should have been a Democrat appointed to investigate Trump and vice versa. But we shouldn't only cast aspersions on sitting Democratic Justice Department officials and their ability to conduct investigations. Look, I actually, I, I totally agree that I think that we lost a teaching moment on this. I mean, which is like, you know, playing to the lowest common denominator, which obviously Trump was very good at doing, you know, we're sort of playing into that. And it is true that you can ask about people's motives and backgrounds, but until you see some evidence that they're acting that way, it's absurd. I mean, Lisa Page, who obviously went through a lot and made various judgment calls that were obviously, you know, not the best, as she has said, has pointed out, like she said, you know, when you're a prosecutor, it's not like you like the people that you are investigating and, and prosecuting. You can prosecute murderers and child molesters and all sorts of people. And you still think they're entitled to all of the due process that is ingrained in you. So I could really understand when she said, you know, we have all these conversations on the side. It has nothing to do and no one even could think about how it would relate to what you're doing on a professional level. But I could see Merrick saying, you know what, I just don't want to buy it. I don't want to buy that whole extra can of worms. I don't want to sell it, really. All of these things are about appearances. One quick counterpoint, and maybe a counterpoint to the counterpoint. One counterpoint here is I think the outsourcing is the right word, Matt. On the other hand, it's pretty clear, isn't it? He's going to take the recommendations of both Smith and her. Smith will probably recommend indictment. Her will probably recommend at least no indictment of Biden. And so in that sense, even though he's doing what Matt says, he's sort of setting it up to, you know, eat his cake and, and have it too. The counterpoint to the counterpoint is there's just such a history here of these frolics and detours and who knows where he's going to go with a former staffer and did they, you know, have completely different crimes. And among other things, that keeps hanging out Biden to dry because you have to imagine it's the last stop in his investigation to, to interview him. Okay, let's do one final question here. Anybody have an opinion on the extent to which, in fact, this whole unfortunate confluence of the two investigations, what effect it has on the Trump prosecution? Does anybody think it makes it either more or less likely that the department eventually bring charges in the Mar-a-Lago case? I don't think of it in terms of whether or not the department will or will not bring charges. 
but in the so in the reporting for a story on Jack Smith that I think nobody read because it was published the day before the special counsel was announced, before Rob Herr was announced, and everybody was anticipating Rob Herr's announcement. So for those of you who want to go back in time and read this story, please do. So in the story that I wrote with Adam Goldman and Glenn Thrush on Jack, one of the things that we heard was that people working on Jack's team expected by the summer to come to some conclusion on charges. Now, that seemed like a long time away for us, and that Mar-a-Lago would probably still be first, not because it was the easiest or because it's just the most discreet set of facts is the way it was described. It's the way uh-huh. we described the story. Just okay. the most discreet set of facts, not easiest or hardest. But then, of course, the special counsel was announced like the fall. <laughs> and I think that it became more clear. And I think that there is a world in which it does make sense to figure out the Biden case. Also, I think you could argue involves a discreet set of facts to figure out what the argument is for or against prosecution in that instance which is also very public, because anything that has to do with classified documents, the handling of classified documents, you can imagine Jack Smith wanting to know the answer to some of those questions as he writes his own you know, potential prosecution memo. He would have to deal with, for example, a declination and how these things are different. I mean, he doesn't have to by the letter of the law, but in order to have the most convincing argument, I would think he would want to. I think the department itself in terms of what Jack Smith will recommend and what her will recommend, or they're going to look at their individual cases. Do they have enough proof? And then they're going to pair it to prior DOJ precedent. And based on what we know today, you have an incredibly strong case for going forward on Mar-a-Lago based on precedent, because people who've done far less have been prosecuted. And with respect to her, based on what we know, there would be a declination with respect to President Biden. That leaves the attorney general with an ability to make sure that the two are being treated consistently. But I do think that it makes it much harder in terms of the department's role and our role in public acceptance, because this will be the first time a former president has been indicted. And being able to explain the Department of Justice's thinking, which, by the way, We all know that's exactly how the department works, and they look at facts and they differentiate as to why one is treated one way and one is treated another is going to be so overwhelmingly important to have as much public acceptance of why the rule of law is being applied here because it was controversial enough to be in a position where you were thinking of charging a former president. So I think it just makes it highly complicated on the public acceptance of what should happen, not on the ultimate decision of, you know, treating likes alike. As much as a really good way to put it there, because it's always going to be limited the extent to which it can be completely accepted by the public. Yeah, look, I think Andrew's right. They're going to have to think very hard about how they make clear if one goes forward and one quietly ends or not so quietly ends to differentiate the two. But what I would say is, I hope that that doesn't change their decision making around either the cases or even their decision making on the timing of either case. One of the things that in my experience at the Justice Department, yes, you have to think about how you explain your actions to the public. But once you start 
letting that affect your decision making, it leads you to all sorts of bad places. It leads you to Jim Comey having a press conference to explain himself yeah, rather yeah, than yeah. just do what you think is right and worry about explaining it later. Katie, I've read your story. And um, <laughs> the thing that worried me in that story, and this goes to the point I'm making, was this idea that they wanted to decide by summer on the Mar-a-Lago case. Because to me, that seems very late when you look at the political calendar. That would mean, let's say he's indicted over the summer, he goes to trial after the Republican nominating process is over. Yeah, easy a year. Yeah. Should they be taking the political calendar into account? Great question. That is a hard question. It is a good question. But I think if you know you have a case that is going to lead to indictment, you want to try to have it interfere with the political process to the least extent possible. And the way you have it interfere with the political process to the least extent possible is have it happen before voters can make their decisions. And so you don't bring an indictment that you don't believe in. But if you have that case ready, you go as soon as possible. So it is not taking place in the middle of the 2024 process. You try to get it done to the extent you can earlier. And I wouldn't hold up the decision if you were waiting for Bob Herr to deliver his recommendation on the Biden case, just so you could explain both of them at the same time. All right. We are almost out of time. And Nicole Wallace has dibs on Andrew Weissman. And I'm very <laughs> loath to uh, anger in any way Nicole Wallace. So I want to, again, exploit people's sort of inside knowledge. Just a quick question about the very much covered January 6th investigations. We've just been talking about Mar-a-Lago. You know, we are the outside looking in and it's a kind of tea leaves or Kremlinology or whatever. Here's my question. Is it clear that with January 6th, they don't have any cooperators yet? And if so, must they have them and where will they be looking? I don't think it's quite right to say they don't have any cooperators. I don't think they have any cooperators who have pleaded guilty. You do have sort of lower level people like Cassidy Hutchins. Yeah, I, that's really what um, I meant Sarah is Matthews. higher up people. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I think is unusual about this case, which in any large scale investigation that I've done, you see these interim steps where people have been charged and flipped. And a sign that this is really still at early stages is that you are not seeing that. And is it clear to you that it hasn't happened? Well, I think if somebody had pled guilty, we would know. Sure. I think that it is possible if somebody was immunized and is now truthful, it is possible that was kept quiet and it was they were in the grand jury, etc. It's possible. It doesn't feel that way, but it is possible. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we stir up a discussion around cocktails. Make your own or buy them ready to drink. There's no question that mixing a delicious cocktail is truly an art form. Precise measurements and proportions, creative substitutions, the presentation itself, and even the speed of delivery are all factors that earn great mixologists the reputations they deserve. But for people who may not stock things like triple sec and bitters, a ready-to-drink cocktail that's pre-measured and mixed just might be worth pulling off the shelf. Ready-to-drink cocktails don't necessarily give you the satisfaction of creating a drink from scratch, 
but they do offer up undeniable convenience, removing the complexity of recipes, the burden of acquiring ingredients, and the time it takes to measure, pour, mix, crush, stir, and of course, repeat. Plus, you still have the ability to customize your drink, adding a splash of this or that, here or there, to your liking. So, whether you're into customization or convenience, ready-to-drink cocktails give you a little bit of both. Now, who says you can't have your cocktail and drink it too? So what's better, customization or convenience? Probably depends on the situation. It can be fun crafting your own cocktail. But when time is short, ready-to-drink cocktail sure does hit the spot. Either way, you can grab all the ingredients you need for a great craft cocktail or get your ready-to-go favorite at Total Wine & More. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. I want to talk briefly about Congress, which is certainly Matt's specialty, having worked there, and Katie covers it. So also this week, we have the um, unveiling, you could say, of divided government and the announcement of the personnel on the Oversight Committee and some very flamboyant names. Let me just ask, you know, this whole rogues gallery in the Oversight Committee, what does it augur specifically for DOJ over the next couple years? I think it augurs a lot of painful interactions for the department. They're going to get a lot of subpoenas. They're going to have to send witnesses up to do interviews and to testify. But ultimately, one thing where we can say with a, a good deal of certainty where DOJ will draw a hard line is supplying any information about ongoing criminal investigations, which is what Congress really seems to care about the most. There may be some things, you know, they've accused the department of trying to intimidate school boards, and they can probably get information around that because that's not a criminal investigation. That's a policy matter the department was involved in. But when it comes to the, the Biden investigation or any of the Trump investigations, DOJ is going to rely on precedent and not turn anything over. And law, not just precedent. It's yeah. I would say, and I will feel fairly, they will feel fairly certain they would win any fight in the court, and that's why they'll press their hand so hard. Oh, yeah, I agree with Matt. They're not going to get one shred of paper. It does create a really weird dynamic, though. You can imagine a scenario in which, because some of the people on the committee, you know, include Scott Perry, who was very close to former President Trump and worked on various schemes to keep him in power. So you, you can imagine a world in which if the Justice Department wanted to get more information about, for example, somebody like Scott Perry and what they were doing in the, at the end of 2020, it does create this very strange dynamic where politically Perry can really use that to his advantage and say that he and this committee who are trying to use the gavel to bring oversight to bear over the department, this would be erroneous to say, but he could say they're retaliated against, being investigated, et cetera. So, you know, it creates sort of like a weird you know, dynamic that I think we've already seen. This is a wing of the Republican Party that's willing to use these sorts of things to their advantage in any way they can. Well, the wing is now the chassis or whatever. I mean, they really are driving it. So just one little follow-up question. Is there a sense in which they'll go a little bit easier on the DOJ, at least for now, and look to, you know, impeach Mayorkas or other parts of the government or the White House because they think her and that uh, special counsel investigation is kind of making enough trouble? Or do you think, you know, just no. pedal to the metal? Ab no, <laughs> right. absolutely not. What is the downside in going after the DOJ? <laughs> yeah, look, they're different committees, right? There's a whole separate committee that will be spending all of its time going after Homeland Security and the way judiciary will be going after DOJ. Fair enough. All right, we have just a minute left for our Talking Five uh, feature. Today it picks up on the discussion we've been having about Robert Herr. 
How long will hers investigation take? Uh, I'll go first. Okay. Longer than it should. <laughs> okay. I'll go second. Ditto. <laughs> Let's see. First half of 2023. Oh, okay. All right, and I've got last. Longer than everyone thinks. All right, we are out of time, I'm sad to say. I love these quarterly DOJ episodes. Thank you very much, as always, to Katie, Matt, and Andrew. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting daily video content breaking down the legal news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Paul Barrett about social media companies' contributions to the insurrection that did not appear in the final report. Talking Feds is a completely independent production with very few commercials, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, David Littman, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.